of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 42 of You Don't Have to Yell, the sole corner of the political universe that doesn't require you to be mad at anything in particular, but of course, it's okay if you're just plain mad. Consider yourselves validated. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and today's episode focuses on the process of congressional redistricting and the practice of gerrymandering, where politicians deliberately draw districts in sometimes very interesting and kooky shapes to ensure their election. My favorite is Goofy Kicking Donald. Look it up. Now, Common Cause, an organization whose mission is to ensure everyone has an equal voice in our democracy, has taken a leadership role in fighting for congressional districts that reflect the will of the people. Novel concept. And Dan Vicuña, this week's guest, is front and center in that fight. Now, as National Redistricting Manager, Dan provides legal and communications support in Common Cause's efforts to protect citizen-centered redistricting reforms and challenge partisan gerrymandering. He was kind enough to join me to talk about the current state of gerrymandering, some of the challenges facing the efforts to draw congressional districts that reflect the will of the voters, and what a good redistricting process actually looks like. And as with many of our guests... He also patiently listened to some of my wilder notions on the subject and responded to the dumbest question I think I have ever asked on this show. So I'll be back at the end to discuss said dumb question along with other comments. I'm going to kick things off with a super softball question, uh, which is what's, what's your role over there at Common Cause? Yeah, so I'm Common Cause's National Redistricting Manager. Um, My role is to support our um, more than 20 state organizations around the country in their efforts to make redistricting a fair and transparent process. So we we do that through all sorts of um, means. So we we sometimes sue legislators who gerrymander districts. Um, We support ballot initiatives to uh, take that power away from legislators or, or at least make it a less partisan process. Um, we uh, sometimes support litigation by being uh, filing amicus briefs, uh, providing a unique perspective to courts, bringing together unusual bedfellows right and left um, mm-hmm. to demonstrate that uh, reform is a, a bipartisan thing. So um, yeah, so basically trying to end gerrymandering around the country. Yeah, cool. H- how did you get into that line of work? Well, I started um, working in uh, politics and volunteering, you know, sort of in college, uh, you know, for kind of local elected officials, um, working on local campaigns. Um, And, uh, you know, when I went to law school, um, it coincided with a a sort of strange period in this country where um, rather than fighting out the issues in the public sphere, there was sort of one set of elected officials that decided they would engage in voter suppression tactics and use the very um, tools of democracy against democracy to, to make mm-hmm. it harder to vote, um, to put up restrictions, to, to gerrymander, um, so to make it more difficult for the public to allow their votes to translate into seats, to hold elected officials accountable. Um, so when I was finished with law school, I, I went into uh, voting rights broadly. I worked for a small organization um, in Washington, D.C., 
and then eventually um, worked my way to uh, Common Cause. We're working on a kind of very specific area of voting rights, which is uh, fair representation and redistricting. Okay, cool, cool. Now, so, uh, you know, gerrymandering has obviously existed for a long time. Um, my home state of Massachusetts is the home of the gerrymander, the original gerrymandered district, which I, I, I don't know if I'll say we're proud of, but that's, that's the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what, in, in terms of the state of gerrymandering today, like how bad is it, historically speaking, compared to maybe other eras? Yeah, you're right. I mean, so gerrymandering does have an incredibly long history uh, in this country. It even goes further back than that. Uh, in the, the first ever Congress, there was an attempt by uh, Patrick Henry to draw congressional lines um, in a way that would make it more difficult for James Madison to get elected. Um, so it's got a long history. However, what we see today is, um, you know, not your grandfather's gerrymander. Um, the mm-hmm. Even in the last um, cycle, 2010, and I think it's likely to be accelerated um, after this census cycle, uh, there there's an, an incredible ability to use a very sophisticated software um, along with um, big data of all sorts of voting histories, uh, what kind of newspapers people get, what kind of clubs they may be a member of, um, to really uh, cr- you know cross-reference that data you know and, and mix it all together and paint a picture of a community that allows a, a decision makers to draw districts that whose outcome can really be predicted for the entire decade. Um, so gerrymandering is, is really in some ways worse than it's ever been. Um, and so that's sort of the bad news. Um, the good news is that you've seen a robust pushback um, to reform this, to reform gerrymandering in the States, to end gerrymandering, reform redistricting. And, um, you know, that's something that we are trying to lead with, with, with partners around the country. So, you know, there's good news and bad news. It's worse than ever, but, but the people get it and are fighting back. I, you know, that was an element of the congressional redistricting process I hadn't even thought of, which is the fact that really maybe if we're being generous, maybe the last 20 years, but definitely the last 10, the ability to analyze and manipulate data and sort of automate the process of gerrymandering has become so much easier. You know, you're right that it is just um, a level of technology that, you know, is being used for the forces of evil um, to make sure that um, you can really preordain the outcome of an entire state's elections for for 10 years. Um, And we've seen that bear out in so many states that had some of the most effective gerrymanders in the country, like in Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, North Carolina, places where the votes cast really had little relationship to the seats won, where one party won a majority of votes, but it still won a significant, a tiny minority of the seats involved. So yeah, the problem is incredibly serious. Yeah. And that's kind of the way I've, I've looked at the problem is I tend to look at individual states, look at just the breakdown of the popular vote. So, you know, 50% voted Democrat, 50% voted Republican. Um, and in my mind, at least, if the variance is too far off that 50-50 mark, then that indicates something amiss. Is that the right way to look at it? Or are there you know, good reasons why the congressional delegation might be very out of whack with the popular vote? 
Yeah, I think it's the right way to look at it, but it's it's not even the complete story about what the problem is. So I think one problem is that you do see a mismatch between votes cast and seats won. I mean, the very premise of representative democracy is that your vote matters and that you have the opportunity to throw the bums out. And um, when these districts have been so so rigged that that is nearly impossible, when you say huge vote shifts that don't make a difference in terms of how many seats a party's won, that's a problem. Um, but e- even within, uh, you know, at, or moving away from just kind of a partisan view of it, you know, another problem is that you see, um, you know, communities divided, um, communities that should be kept together for the purposes of really having a voice, having one champion at any level of government in Congress and the state legislature and the city council, you know, divided between different districts and having no real opportunity um, to have a, a champion in the halls of power advocating um, for what, uh, what they need. Um, or you've seen uh, it's used sometimes for sort of racial gerrymandering to ensure that a community that maybe have kind of up and coming leaders um, is divided such that um, they're not able to elect the candidate of their choice or even have a fighting chance to do so. Um, so there are definitely problems both with uh, what gerrymandering does to the partisan makeup of a delegation or, the, or, or of a state legislature, um, but also, you know, other issues that just have little less to do with partisanship than have more to do with just basic fairness and community representation. Mm-hmm. Do you still see a degree of racial gerrymandering now, or has it become more more partisan focused? Do you feel there? It's definitely still there. I mean, just in the last cycle, you saw racial gerrymandering um, or used as the legal basis for striking down maps in Virginia, Alabama, um, North Carolina. Um, I think a handful of other places as well. So there, you know, in particular. What you'll see when Republicans are in charge is a desire to pack together as many people of color in as few districts as possible. So you may have a, um, you know, a one or two districts where um, African Americans, Latinos can, can elect the candidate of their choice by overwhelming majority margins, and you know those, those districts tend to be also very Democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, but then those communities have little ability to um, to shape. Uh, representation elsewhere. Um, it's an attempt mm. to really bleach surrounding districts. So you definitely still see that. Um, you know, the, the good thing is that the the jurisprudence around racial gerrymandering is much better than partisan gerrymandering. So there is still a willingness of federal courts to police racial gerrymandering. Um, that's le- that's not the case with partisan gerrymandering because of recent legal developments. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's actually something I, I wanted to get to, which is I know you've written you've written a few briefs for the Supreme Court. Um, Supreme Court tends to take a fairly clear and hard line when it comes to racial ger- gerrymandering. But am I correct in saying when it comes to partisan gerrymandering, they've sort of maybe taken a pass at that? Yeah, that's right. So Common Cause was the the plaintiff or one of the plaintiffs in a case at the lower court called um, Common Cause v. Ruscio, and then it went to the Supreme Court, became Ruscio v. Common Cause, um, where the justices, a bare five four majority, decided one of the kind of worst opinions I think in the recent history of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we came to them um, with. Uh, a Republican-led gerrymander in North Carolina, and the case was heard on the same day 
uh, with a partner case that we had been really involved in as well, challenging a Democratic gerrymander in Maryland. Court heard these cases the same day. You know, we, we really laid out the case that, you know, this is a bipartisan problem. Um, we organized amicus briefs from leaders across the ideological spectrum uh, to say that, uh, you know, we don't agree on much, but we agree that diluting the votes of one party's voters um, is both morally wrong and also constitutionally wrong. Um, and the court punted, as you indicated. Uh, the court decided that federal courts broadly would be forbidden from policing partisan gerrymandering. What they said was it was a political question um, that they could not determine um, an appropriate measure for partisan gerrymandering or an appropriate legal standard, um, which, which baffled us because in cases, our own case in North Carolina, the Maryland case, in cases out of Ohio and Michigan that were also making their way um, through the pipeline at the same time, uh, trial courts figured it out. They figured out, uh, you know, kind of an evidentiary standard for looking at when one party's votes have been diluted and when, as a result, First Amendment rights uh, to associate, to cast a meaningful vote that counts, equal protection rights, uh, you know, being targeted unfairly by the government uh, when when partisan gerrymandered represented an assault on those rights. And, and they figured it out, but somehow the U.S. Supreme Court um, over a vigorous dissent from Justice Kagan um, decided that they wouldn't act on partisan gerrymandering. So we're looking right now to state courts and to state reforms to, to, to end that practice. Yeah. And the one thing I'll note too, for the folks listening is that with North Carolina and Maryland, you're talking about gerrymandering for two different parties. So I, I think a lot of times, and maybe it's just the, the media I consume, but a lot of times when you hear about gerrymandering, it's very often a Republican-led initiative. But in, in Maryland's case, of course, it's the Democratic Party that's putting their thumbs on the scales, correct? Yeah. I mean, so in the 2010 election, Republicans had an incredibly good year. Um, you know, they Operation Red Map, which was specifically targeted to um, to do what it what it did, which is to win over state legislatures for the purposes of having control of redistricting. Um, it was they spent uh, it was money well spent, um, and mm-hmm. they won a lot of seats. And you know, in addition to the fact that it was you know a Democratic president's first midterm year, which usually goes badly for um, for whoever the incumbent president. Is. So the combination of those things for that to happen in a redistricting year, you know, worked out very well. And Republicans kind of ran the table in the state legislatures and therefore had the power to draw districts. But, you know, for decades and decades preceding that, um, Democrats tended to do better and won, won most state legislatures. And they were in control of the process and were the primary um, contributors to gerrymandering as a problem, which is why, you, you know, we have a lot of footage of Ronald Reagan decrying, you know, what a, how undemocratic uh, gerrymandering is and seeking a solution to it. So, um, you know, there, there's a history of Democrats doing it as well. And in the hand of a couple of states, Illinois and Maryland, where Democrats were in charge, we are reminded that this is really not particularly about party. It's really about power. And uh, the party that's in charge um, will keep it uh, basically at all costs, which is why we um, are seeking reforms to take it out of their hands. Yeah, I and I'll I'll float out a wildly 
unsubstantiated theory, Dan. But um, when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in the in the Boston area. Uh, this would have been, you know, Dukakis era, Massachusetts. So very, very height of sort of what we'd call maybe '80s liberalism. And uh, I remember, and again, it, it could have just been the fact that my dad was a disaffected Democrat who went hard Republican at the time. But I remember hearing all these outlandish stories of Democratic legislators and uh, and and some of the you know the some of the stuff they were promoting was very off center you know um, and I look now at uh, the Republican Party and I almost see a mirror image of it which is I see a party that's allowed itself to drive itself crazy by creating an environment where they are only accountable to the party base and not accountable to the um, and not accountable to the people not accountable to the center and now I'll I'll kind of leave Dan conspiracy land so we can get back to maybe something you're you're free to comment on but do you see uh, from a from a, a, a like an intra party perspective are there instances where uh, a gerrymandered district for example can actually harm the the party itself or the party in power just due to the fact that uh, that the primary has effectively substituted the the general election yeah i mean there is a a a significant shift, I think, in uh, one's ideological perspective when yeah. your district has been drawn to virtually guarantee a victory for your party. Um, so, therefore, you know your 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 concern isn't at all um, hearing from constituents of the opposite party or um, negotiating or finding common ground with other, co- other legislators. Uh, of the opposite party your your primary concern is protecting your behind um, from a primary challenge mm-hmm. and so therefore I think you're definitely more likely to um, aim your messaging at the most extreme elements um, activists within your party I think that's why you see uh, you know out in the state some of the most restrictive m- measures uh, against ab- abortion rights uh, mm-hmm. In states where the gerrymandered legislatures, you're seeing um, fierce opposition to expansion of um, sort of healthcare resources to, you know, these bathroom bills that were popular targeting transgender community a few years mm-hmm. back. These are really all the result of, uh, of, I think, a polarization caused by gerrymandering. Hello there. I hope you're enjoying the show. And wanted to break quickly to ask again for those of you who aren't listening for the first time for a favor that's easier than picking me up from the airport now today dan and i have been talking about some of the efforts both major parties have undertaken to make themselves less accountable to public opinion and that's something this podcast is dedicated to changing and to do this we need more people like you so to help go to your device right now and share it with the people you know. It takes one click. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to You Don't Have to Yell and hear from activists like Dan and third-party candidates who aren't afforded the same voice in the process as the major parties are. Again, it takes one additional click. Now, lastly, you can find You Don't Have to Yell on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and YDHTY.com for bonus content and to let me know what you're thinking. I'd love to hear from you. So there, just a couple clicks, a little internet browsing, and you can pick me up from the airport once they let us all fly again. Now, back to the show. I can't remember what 
election it was, but it was one of the, it was during the Obama era. And I remember Alec Baldwin said, you know, your party's in trouble when somebody asks, did the rape guy win? And you respond with which one? And, <laughs> and I, it's, it's coarse, but it, it gets the point across, which is that, uh, you know, once you've created a quote unquote safe seat, you've actually created an environment that's really ripe for, let's call it extremism, for lack of a better phrasing, from a, from a partisan standpoint. One of my pet causes is the idea of, of proportional representation and is the idea that in an ideal scenario, the congressional delegation of a state should represent the percentage. And that should not just be, um, you know, Democrat, Republican, but any anyone else for that matter, any other party for that matter. And, you know, in a lot of ways, we've sort of painted ourselves into a corner because there's federal legislation around single member districts, which really ultimately create an environment where only two parties can exist. Um, I guess, a, a que- and this could be a really dumb question, Dan, and so feel free to tell me if it is, but I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time getting my head around why the federal government, why the U.S. House of Representatives can pass laws that govern the way congressional districts are carved, and yet the Supreme Court on the same token can say, well, this isn't a federal issue. It's really a state's issue. Do you have any, is, am, am I... Am I being stupid here, or is this is is there a conflict? Well, I think what you know what the court has said. Actually, one of the excuses I think they really have given to to stay out is the fact that you know Congress does in fact have the power to do something, and in fact, HR um, one, the first bill, kind of a an omnibus voting rights package that that mm-hmm. the the U.S. House passed when when Democrats won back power in twenty eighteen. Um, does actually include a requirement for independent citizen redistricting commissions in every state. Um, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, that's that bill is sort of dead on arrival in the Senate. Um, but Congress can act, um, you know, to to make this a fair process to emulate some of the gold standard reforms that the states have been passing: California, Michigan, Colorado. Um, so they can do something, um, but unfortunately, that you know, the bill is just you know not going anywhere in the Senate and, and would undoubtedly be vetoed by the president. Yeah, it, it seems to me that the the big problem with it all is the fact that the people whose livelihoods are going to be affected by this are also the ones who'd have to take action, maybe potentially creating a less level or a less uneven playing field for themselves. And so there's, it, it seems like there is this collective lack of political will with the understanding that, you know, one side may benefit in these states and another side may benefit in the other. Is that an overly cynical interpretation or would you say that's the state no, of affairs? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, you know, this is why we, of course, we're urging the court to act because there's an inherent conflict of interest there. You don't, you yeah. know, legislators are not interested in giving up this power, but, um, you know, I think... This is also part of the reason why some of the um, best successes on this issue have come in ballot initiative states. Um, unfortunately, you know that's less than half the country, but you've at least seen the ball move in. Uh, you know, again, here where I sit in California, which has really kind of the gold standard model for this, which was, uh, I should add, fiercely opposed by California Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi when it was first created in, in two thousand eight. 
um, you know, to create a, a sort of multi-partisan group of citizens who are screened for um, a whole host of conflicts of interest, right? You make sure that they aren't um, recent elected officials, lobbyists, uh, political party hacks. Um, and it right. worked out really well and it's been emulated across the country. Um, and, you, and again, generally passed by ballot initiative um, because it's it's hard to get legislators to give that up. I mean, there, but, you know, there is... Um, fortunately, though, kind of a growing awareness of the of the problem and of the issue. And as a result, you actually saw for the first time in quite a long time, um, legislators themselves give it up in a non-ballot initiative state in Virginia just a few months ago. So uh, reform will be on the ballot. Um, okay. And so there's, there's, you know, we're seeing movement. Yeah, yeah. So what I, I know you mentioned, it seems like California and has a has a fairly good process like in your in your opinion what is sort of an ideal process for redistricting yeah i mean i think it involves mechanisms mechanisms that minimize partisanship that um, remove people from the decision making process who have really a personal or political stake in the outcome so Mm -hmm. um you know and so the way the california's process works is it's it's slightly complicated one but it's one that it's complicated for good reason, which is to ensure that there's um, no sort of partisan misbehavior. Um, it, you, know, you have people applying to a state auditor first um, and those applicants being screened for, like I said, a long list of conflicts of interest. Um, you guarantee partisan balance um, as a way of really neutralizing party advantage as a real factor. So there on on California's commission, there's five Democrats, five Republicans, and four unaffiliated or or four people who are neither of those parties. They could be independents. They can be third party. Um, In other States, they've changed the balance of that, you know, sort of four Dems, four Republicans and five who are neither. Um, So you've seen it done a few ways. Um, And then strong transparency rules. Um, One of the kind of revolutionary, uh, provisions of California's law that's been repeated in other places was uh, a requirement that every conversation about redistricting take place in public hearings. Um, you know, a a trademark um, of gerrymandering is that um, you know legislators may have some sort of sham public hearings, but in the end, they go to some back room, some hotel room, or law, a law firm. Um, huddle up with political consultants and carve up districts uh, exactly the way they want them, regardless of what the public has to say. So those transparency requirements are key too. So, um, you know, so managing partisanship, uh, mandating transparency, um, it's, it's a way to make it a better process and it can, it can definitely be done. Okay. Is and now California's, uh, California's process, is that, at the federal level, state, or, 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 is it, or both? It's for both. Uh, it was passed in 2008 for state legislative districts, and it squeaked by, like I said, despite a fierce opposition of uh, mm-hmm. Democratic interests here. And then two years later, um, I won with much larger majorities to add congressional districts to the mandate. Okay. Okay. So I know, you know one of the big stories over the the last couple of years has been sort of the death of the California Republican Party. And given we're going to be approaching what well, we are in the, you know, we, we are at, at the moment of redistricting or redistricting year, um, given California's new laws, is there a likelihood that that could change and that maybe Republicans could start to see greater gains in the state as a result? Well, I think what, you know, what the 
independent commission does is ensure that districts are actually responsive to changes in voter opinions. You know, as mm-hmm. you know, the, a, a lot of Republican opponents uh, to independent commission model have pointed to California to say, well, look, it's just been a big, big boondoggle for Democrats. Democrats are running the table and winning all these districts since this independent commission was created. Well, the ideology of the state has changed. Uh, you know, the California Republican Party's reputation in the state um, took a downturn, at, you know, particularly after um, it set its sights on harsh, harsh anti-immigration positions. And that didn't mm-hmm. sit well with kind of even moderate Democrats and, you know, a growing Latino population. So when it came election time, the, you know, Democrats did significantly better in terms of winning votes. And because the commission had established districts that were designed to be responsive to changes in vote, you know, actual votes cast, you know, the, the districts acted accordingly and Democrats won more seats. But, um, you know, if Republicans had an ups, an uptick and, and started to do better and, and the ideology of the state changed, the, the way those districts are designed, Republicans would certainly, would certainly start to do better because these districts are not made to be immune to um, accountability. So uh, you would definitely mm. see a switch. Got it. So it sounds like the process in California and really, it really sounds like the one we should all be striving for is one where the district's vote is reflective of public opinion rather than reflective of partisan bent as I know that's probably an oversimplification, but does that sound about right or? Yeah, I think that's right. Because I, you know, what kind of representative democracy did you have if you don't see shifts in who's actually elected that are based on votes cast. I mean, it's, it's just fundamental to what our system is supposed to be. So, um, you know, in in some ways you, in some States, you've seen that written in explicitly. Um, Mm -hmm. Missouri uh, created a slightly different type of reform in 2018, where they, where they really put some specific kind of mathematical approaches to responsiveness is what we tend tend to call uh, sort of the social science term for, you know, votes translating to seats. Um, in California, they, we, we didn't include those kind of mathematical approaches, but it still, it still worked because the districts were designed to put communities first and not party interests. So um, it can definitely be done in some different ways. But, but in the end, I think if, uh, you, if you have a fair and transparent process that's really about community representation, you're going to see a, a districts actually uh, respond to changes in the vote. I think you're the only person I've spoken with who has actually put something before the Supreme Court, and I'd like to make sure that they continue reading your briefs. But do you feel like the composition of the court affects progress in this area? Or do you feel like, in the sense, the cynical interpretation would be that to an extent, the partisan makeup of the court or who appoints the justices uh, is ultimately going to influence uh, the the, 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 their view or their rulings on redistricting. Um, do you feel that's a valid point of view or, or do you feel more so it's about how the constitution is interpreted that's guiding it and just some folks have an interpretation that's a bit different than others? Boy, at the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court level, it, it sure does seem to have become an ideological issue, it, 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 which is baffling to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, like I said, you know, we we brought a case that was about a Republican gerrymander that was egregious. Our friends, uh, Michael Kimberly, an attorney who, who took on the Maryland case for years and years, and you brought, you know, just a, a perfect example of, of, of a horrendous ger- Democratic gerrymander. 
And we really thought we set the table. Um, you know, we laid out the, the issues, the, the ways in which votes were diluted, the harm done to the democratic process and to voters. And it somehow came down to the, the same 5-4 ideological split in which the five justices appointed by Republicans said this is no problem, nothing, no, you know, no need for the court. Well, not that it was no problem, but that there was, the court couldn't do anything. And the four yeah. justices appointed by Democrats um, said that something needed to be done and said so with, with some degree of sorrow and anger in their, in their, in the tone of the dissent. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think unfortunately there, there may be an ideological uh, explanation here, um, you know, at, at the federal level. Fortunately, you know, we've seen something different though in, in state courts, you know, shortly mm-hmm. after the Ruscio decision, we challenged um, state legislative districts and state court um, as an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander in North Carolina. Um, there was a, uh, you know, and that was a, a bipartisan decision, a unanimous decision um, of Republican and Democratic judges. Um, so, I, you know, I, in Michigan, you know, a, a different, different court case, there was a challenge to the state's Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. Uh, to try to keep it uh, before before it succeeded, try to keep it off the ballot, and that was a bipartisan vote um, of very political elected judges, um, you know, supporting the people's right to to do something about this. So, um, you know, I, I think you may see a different story in the states, hopefully, but unfortunately, at the, at the U.S. Supreme Court level, it, it seemed to be some sort of uh, relationship to ideology. Yeah. So I, I guess if we're we're walking away from this and, and we want to know what are kind of the actionable steps that could be taken to improve it, it, it sounds to me that the the best approach is really at a state by state level, establishing the standards that, that that you mentioned that are seen in California and other states. And maybe if you get to the point where you are battling redistricting in the courts, you may be too late at that point because all it needs to do is get to Washington and then it's more or less clear how that's going to, you know, how that's going to pan out. Is that, is that a decent summary or anything you'd add or amend there? Yeah. Well, I'd say that the, the fortunately the court story is a, is a little more optimistic because um, when it comes to interpretation of state law, state Supreme courts have the final say. So you, you're not going to see those appeal to the Supreme court, which is why our subsequent victory in North Carolina and also a challenge to the congressional map in state court by some of our allies did succeed. Um, because fortunately, you know, you can't, you can't send that to the U S Supreme court, but, it, but it's, it is a hard, it's a hard road. It's an expensive road. And it usually means you're challenging districts that have already been drawn. Um, mm. you know, the state by state fight, you're right that that is really, I think the better approach, you know, in places where there are ballot initiatives, um, mm fighting that out there. We are trying to see in a COVID-19 world um, if we can continue to make reform happen in places that had active ballot initiative campaigns. Um, Oregon is one that that, that we've led where we're going to see what we can do um, by mail. Uh, it's a challenge though, but, um, you know, and even, you know, like I mentioned, Virginia, which um, was a place where there was pressure put on only um, related to just sort of public shaming, you know, there wasn't a threat of the people going to the ballot and passing something that would have been stronger that legislators were afraid of. It was just a matter of shaming them into doing the right thing. And, um, you know, there's success there. So I think because of the, the higher public profile of this issue and the harm that, um, it can cause to democracy, you're actually seeing, um, you know, state activism, even in places without ballot initiatives to be a, a viable path. So, in this episode, with Dan Vicuña, 
a man who writes amicus briefs to the Supreme Court, I asked if the ideal legislative district should be designed to reflect public opinion. Big fat duh. Now, while not the most insightful question, also not entirely unreasonable, given how unreflective many elections are of the true public opinion of the regions they serve. Now, just to give you an example, 20 out of 50 states have congressional delegations where their partisan makeup would be fundamentally different if representatives were truly apportioned proportionately. Now, Dan also cited how technology and big data are making it easier than ever for major parties to draw districts in their favor using information such as newspaper circulation and club memberships. And this is a trend that's only going to get worse as technology gets better. And if there's a bright side in all of this, it's that the same technology makes it easier for folks like Dan to get the word out. So it's tougher to do this under cover of darkness. Now, as Dan mentioned, the current pandemic is making Common Cause's job harder than ever. So you can visit commoncause.org for more information on how you can donate or help out in other ways. Now, next week, the Data Monkey is joining me to round out the month and tell us if we actually have to be worried about murder hornets or just being worried about everything else we'll do. Until then, you can find You Don't Have to Yell on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and ydhty.com. Music, as always, courtesy of Trellertack. YDHTY is produced by the big Gino, Jason Putney, and the podcasting capital of the world, Jason's house. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.